So Ronnie, I uh, I heard this quote. I don't think it was super recent, but I heard this quote and it's been tattooed on my brain and it's really inspired a lot of my thinking as we get into our uh, conversation today. And the quote is that storytelling is the last true competitive advantage in business. And so the way that you're able to tell stories uh, is truly a potential differentiator. So today we get to talk to like a real life storyteller. Exciting, but definitely it, exciting. It is exciting. Uh, and so I want to welcome to the Group Thinkers podcast, Meg LaFove. Hi, Meg. Hello. Thanks for having me here. When you hear me say a real life storyteller, like what what goes through your mind? Oh, well, it makes me very happy because it's what I wanted to be since I was little. So it's thrilling. I love that quote. I have a podcast and myself, and we just had Joe Cole on who did Black Panther and Wakanda Forever. And he talked a lot about how, in his opinion, I think he's completely right. Storytelling is one of the best ways to change the world. Um, and it's used in every kind of religion, discipline to uh, communicate and change uh, views and opinions and perspectives because ultimately you're talking about the human condition and it's all about connection. So that quote fit perfectly in what I am so fascinated by and what Joe was talking about on the screenwriting life. So um, I'm right in, I'm right in that boat with you today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, uh, so Meg, this is group thinkers and, uh, you know, as we've traded notes, our podcast is for nonprofit marketers and, uh, on each and every episode, we have someone join us for a chat, uh, on how to think about something differently. And, uh, and so many times it's someone from the digital marketing space or the technology space. And, um, I reached out to you cold through LinkedIn. And, uh, and the reason for that is that, um, you're not just a storyteller. You're a very good storyteller, uh, as evidenced by your background, um, uh, for our audience, Meg is, uh, has been nominated for an Emmy, a Golden Globe, uh, an Oscar, and awarded a Peabody uh, for uh, her work. Uh, and I don't know if it's most notably, but the the immediate connection for our listeners is that uh, as as Ronnie and I have spent time talking about emotions and emotional intelligence, uh, one particular animated film kept coming up. And that was Inside Out. And we uh, we had kind of a running uh, bit about how could we find someone connected to Inside Out <laughs> that uh, that would join us for a chat about storytelling and, and, and about emotions. And we found her. We found you. <laughs> uh, and so it's truly an honor to, uh, to have you on. And uh, our worlds, I believe, are more tangential. Uh, and connected than uh, than we know, and I think we're going to find that today. And awesome. so, thank, thanks for being here. So, yeah, sure. um, so here's where here's where I want to start. Okay. Is uh, I, I want to start with Inside Out, and I want to hear your perspective on how like how that story came together, how the ideas of 
humanizing or putting characters to emotions came together? Sure. Um, you know, Inside Out is Pete Doctor's baby. Um, I'm sure he'd love to be here talking about it today, but he's running Pixar, so a little bit busy. Pete Doctor originally pitched, directors at Pixar kind of pitched to the Brain Trust what they're interested in doing next. And he originally pitched his experience with his daughter, who, when she was young, she'd, you know, meet people at the front door and do a tap dance for them and just thought she was fabulous and she was just a happy, joyful child. And then she turned 11. And in his original pitch, he would show a slide of her at 11, which was sitting in, in a chair with her hair over her face, turned away, really a very different experience of her. And as a parent, it kind of broke his heart. And he said, as a parent, I have a question, which is where did my daughter's joy go? And I want to go find out. I want to tell a story about where her joy went and what happens to a little girl 11 years old that she lost some connection to that. And then it was a journey of a lot of research. Uh, I Before I came on, I think they did two years, if not more of research, talking to experts in emotion. You know, at one point, I think, you know, one expert said there's 21 emotions. And at one point they had 12 and um, including like schadenfreude and all kinds of fun stuff. But uh, eventually they settled on, when I came on, they had the five main emotions kind of boiled it down to that. And they had some places, they knew that they wanted joy to go out into the mind and have an adventure out there and come back. But Pete hadn't yet as a storyteller really deeply thought about thematically what he wanted to talk about in terms of emotionally. Um, For sure, this question about his daughter was in there and the loss of your child as a parent that you suffer in terms of their memories and who they are. But deep more, he was looking even for a more deep um, insight into emotions and, and being human. And when, before I came on, he had had fear out in the mind with joy because he used to joke, I don't know, when I was in, when I was 11, I was afraid of everything. So I must have something to say about fear. But he just couldn't, when he, he couldn't think of what it was that he wanted to say about fear. So um, there's a great video on the DVD extras of Inside Out. I don't think it's on Disney Plus. They should put it on. It's amazing. Where he's very concerned because... People are walking out of the screening because at Pixar, you have a lot of internal screenings of drawn boards, not animated. And they're still saying it's a good idea. They're not yet saying it's a good movie or it's a good story. And there's a very, very big difference when you're a storyteller between an idea, a situation, a a list of of, of situations and a story. And so he takes a walk in the woods because that's what Pete does when he's stuck. He gets out into nature and walks. Sometimes we're with him and sometimes he's alone. And he took a camera and he recorded himself. Okay, okay, well, I'm... And he just went down into his emotions because that is what Pete Doctor is a genius at doing. He just went deeply to find story, to find what it is that he was compelled to talk about, which is at some point as a storyteller in the unconscious, he just started um, verbalizing what he felt in the present moment, which was fear. Like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired, which is ironic, right? The guy's like multiple Academy Awards, but he's human and we're all human and it doesn't matter what you've done before. He was just, I'm going to get fired. Okay, what do I, and he just kept asking why and getting more and more present. And I think this is a good technique for anybody um, that more and more present with, okay, well, what will I miss if I get fired? Well, I'll miss my house because I'll have to sell it. And well, I'll miss going to work. Okay, why will I miss going to work? Well, I'll miss going to work because I'll miss seeing everybody every day. And what, what will I miss about that? Well, I'll miss what good time. 
I've had with these people. And then he realized, you know what I'm going to really miss is how bonded we are. And how did we get that bonded? Well, because we went through some tough times together. They lost Joe Raft, who was an original founding member of Pixar, who died in a car accident. And they lost Steve Jobs, who was a very important part of their uh, group and life there. And he suddenly realized, oh, it's sad. I want to talk about how sadness actually connects us. And we always want to try to avoid it. We don't want to feel that. But in fact, it's a gift. And it's something that um, brings us together. And it's it's a good thing. Um, so I, of course, was like, Pete, that'll change the world. And he was like, please don't say that again. Because it's like too much pressure, right? Let, let's just tell a story, right? Let's just let's just have fun and tell a story. Um, and then it's my job to then take the research that I have and what I know about emotion, which we can talk about where that came for me, um, and try to shape it now into a story um, using the craft that I know as a storyteller to take that idea, um, which is that basically your main character has to have that experience in the movie. Because I said, you know, Pete, if this movie's about it's okay to be sad, then our audience is going to have to be sad in this movie. They're, we're, they're going to n- need to feel the emotions that we're describing. Uh, and, you know, at the time, uh, John Lasseter was the head of Pixar, and I was like, I have no idea if he's going to let us do this. But he was so on board. He was like, I want to cry right there. Um so that's kind of how we started to shape the movie, which is if you it want the main character to get to this re- this realization at the end of Act Two, oh my gosh, sadness is what Riley needs as a child. Then at the beginning of the movie, she has the opposite idea, which is sadness is a bad thing. Don't let Riley feel sad, which is a really, really high bar for a storyteller because I have to convince the audience that joy is right. Meaning, I have to convince the audience that the idea of don't let this child be sad is a good idea. Because otherwise, you're not deeply in the story. You're kind of watching it, and you're ahead of your main character. Like, okay, Joy, that's kind of a silly idea, and you're waiting for her to come to consciousness. Well, that's not you're, you're not going to have an emotional, cathartic experience in the theater. So if you really look at Act 1, we are setting up and convincing you that joy is right about sadness. And we're doing lots of fun things to do it. There's a whole montage of sadness making Riley cry and doing all kinds of fun things. And we spent days in the story room talking about our lives and ourselves and um, trying to find the best thing to really convince an audience, oh, don't let her feel sad. And, you know, I think crying at school once, you know, her crying in school, you have a visceral like, oh, please don't do that, which is what joy is feeling, right? So um, that's kind of why that became the kind of penultimate get sadness out of here. And of course, it's Amy Poehler. So she's having super a lot of fun, like the circle of sadness and all the fun stuff that she's doing. Um, And Amy Poehler is a big, big part of why that story works, because she's so delightful. And even while she's being happy, she so wants you to be happy, too. You know, it's Mm -hmm. a very connected happiness. Um, So that's kind of how it came to be and how I came on the project and kind of where we went with it. Uh, from the outside, it seems like such a unique project uh, in terms of the way that you're writing for something that we feel uh, and making that into a character. Um, Something that we know to be true is that uh, the feelings that donors have Hmm. to nonprofits can dictate whether or not they support them more or support them less. And Hmm. 
two feelings in particular, feeling valued and uh, and feeling connected, like brought in, like you're a part of the, the family, so to speak. And so many times we talk with nonprofit leaders about ways that they can stoke those ideas. Uh, what was it like to sit in emotions as characters is that more complicated less complicated than writing for uh for any of your other projects well in some ways it's easier because they're archetypes they're just archetypes they're just but that then becomes harder right as as soon as you think something's easy it's gonna flip on you right of course and be like oh no this is actually harder which is you know when i first came on board um somebody said to me nobody likes joy you know she's just and i'm like well because incessantly happy people are annoying yeah. yeah. And you have to think, why? Why are incessantly happy? Because it doesn't feel real. Because nobody, nobody is happy all the time. I don't even think that's healthy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so <laughs> I had to really think about joy and that she's not using her joy to control because then we're really not going to like her if she's trying to be the boss and control this whole situation. Um, so what is her joy? I, was, I really started to think psychologically about what is this kind of archetypical, joyful, happy person? And in Joy's case, uh, I came to when Joy feels vulnerable uh, over her head and the stakes are her child, her default, her survival instinct is happiness. So like we had a beat in the movie where Joy sees a piece of her kid called Goofball Island shatter and fall into the forgetting dump. And it's tricky, right? Because from a story point of view, visually, all you're seeing on the screen is a mechanical thing. Right. Industrial. Industrial thing, right? So it's super important that you have the edit cut of as that thing falls, you're actually seeing that little girl who was being goofy so that you really understand that is what this parent is losing and to be in deeply in Joy's point of view. And if in the cut uh, or in the writing of storytelling, she watches it fall and then goes, don't worry, I know what to do. You're like, oh my God, I hate you. I just wow, that's so bad, right? And you don't even know why intellectually. It's just almost like an animal reaction to that because it's not connected to what emotionally just happened. So it's super important to have Joy take a beat of, oh my gosh, I just lost a piece of my kid just to feel the overwhelm and vulnerability. You know, we, I believe we connect through vulnerability which is why as a storyteller or an artist, you have to find some way to become comfortable with it. If not comfortable with it, at least allow it. On my podcast, sometimes we call it lava. You know, it can burn. It can feel like it will burn you up. But that's the job of artistry and storytelling is to be the one to wade into the lava first. So to be vulnerable and to let Joy be vulnerable and let Joy not know what the heck is she going to do now. And then you watch her start to calibrate and go, okay, okay, here comes the survival instinct. Now it's kicking in. And you're like, okay, all right, wait, wait, we could do that. Okay, that'll fix it. And okay, now I know what to do. So, And we now admire that, right? That in the depth of this fiery lava of vulnerability and overwhelm, she's able to get some grit and rise to uh, save her kid. So it's that kind of swing from vulnerability into the kind of heroic a moment. Uh, I'm sorry, you guys. My kid is on a drum. Why now? Why is my kid on a drum right now? Because, because of course now, right? 
I don't even know if I have a drum in my house. Do I have a drum in my house? <laughs> He's supposed to be sick. He's clearly not that sick. Here, I'm, I'm being a parent right now, which is no, it's fine. It's totally fine. Um, okay, so this is a there's a powerful connection here between what you're talking about in terms of vulnerability and in the space that we operate in that when our team creates a letter or an email or a display ad or a TV spot, whatever it is that we are trying to create vulnerability in between a nonprofit organization and a potential donor. And and the goal is actually to expose that vulnerability so that the person feels um, compelled to and drawn to authentically help uh, and partner with that organization to solve a problem that they can't do on their own, right? And so it is like there is this parallel of living in the vulnerability that, you know, to your point, I think that's the ultimate artistry. I really do. But it, to, to, to be able to, in a letter or a thing I see on social media or wherever it's coming at me, to feel the vulnerability of, oh my God, I can feel that. I feel so, and then I feel slightly overwhelmed by that. Um, but then, ba ba ba, here's the answer. This group is doing it. This group is valid. This group has had success. Like that's the, the survival instinct kicking up. No, you can do something. It may seem so much bigger than you and you can feel that overwhelm and that overwhelm, you know, there's so many emotions that can be in there. Sadness, fear, um, so many things. Um, but to me, the key is that, and the key to the character is, and why they're the hero, right? Why of all the people in this movie is it Joy who we're choosing as our hero because she's the one who can do that, who can still say, I hear you. Yes, this is overwhelming. I get it. I'm there with you. I'm so overwhelmed too, but I'm passionately going to find this solution. And here's my plan, which is also in a story very important. When I teach, I teach emerging writers. Yes, at the end of act one, your character has a goal and there are stakes to that goal and there's conflicts to that goal. But what really gets the audience excited is the plan. Because if we don't have the yellow brick road, you can have all the munchkins and and, and fairies and people coming, but like what? The yellow brick road is the plan. That's Act Two. Of, that's the story. And then working with Andrew Stant was so great because he would talk about expectation. Now this I don't think goes with what you're doing, but just on the side, just for a fun thing. Because then as a story in a movie, you lay down the plan so you can completely mess with it and you completely can say that doesn't work. That didn't work. Right. Now, I don't want my nonprofit <laughs> necessarily to do that, but I want to know that the nonprofit as a story and as a thing I'm connecting to is ready to pivot, that that it they're not so narrow that if it doesn't go according to plan, because what in life does, they're, they have a breadth and a depth and a skill set available to shift and to still stay on the journey, to learn, to grow, to be present enough that the rigidity doesn't then narrow down the effect. Um, so there is some, still some, I think, connection to what you're doing in terms of uh, you can, I want to hear the plan and then know things can go not to plan, but that's okay. Meg, kind of shifting uh, gears a little bit, I'm curious about, uh, I guess, I guess your character arc in the story of your life, uh, 
So as you've gone through your career now, I know um, you kind of started working with Jody Foster and Egg Pictures and, and, and you know, then you shifted kind of into writing and all this. As you've gone through this career, what are some things that you've learned? And, and I'm just curious, people who maybe who have inspired you and have really taught you or, or things like that, that you've picked up along the way that you mentioned you're uh, working with students, um, you know, things that you're sharing as you're kind of giving it forward to the, to the next generation. Well, there's so many things. I'm trying to think what's would be relevant to this context, but you know, um, certainly Jody, uh, Foster, you know, one of the smartest people in the business, if not the world, um, just a, a great, great artist, um, uh, uh, she taught me to approach story as a director or an actress does because that's what she is, which is all about character and thematic. What is this about? Um, and she used to say, when you wanted to picture something, she used to say, what's the big, beautiful idea in here? And um, we almost made t-shirts, um, you know, and I say that now to my students or to when I was a producer, I knew I had to answer that question. If I was taking anything to her, I needed to be able to say, what are you trying to say? Now, she didn't say big, beautiful ideas. She said idea. And it had to be digging down to something insightful about the human condition. She would always talk about this is about the storytelling is about exploring the human condition. Um, now, you can do that in movies with, with superheroes or two people sitting at a dining room table. The, the context can shift dramatically in tone and, and size. But ultimately, what are we digging to? And, you know, when I went to Pixar... Um, we would put a word, if we could just find a word, we'd put that on the wall, right? And, but our job is, a word is not a theme yet. Um, what, so let's just say, now this wasn't at Pixar, this was a different job I had, but let's say, you know, we know this is about redemption, but what do we have to say about redemption? Is the emotional thematic we're going for. It's not just a big pot about redemption because boy, that there's a lot of things you could say about redemption if you take different points of view on it, right? So it was always trying to really get down to a sentence or two that really stood for that human condition, emotional, thematic. So now in storytelling, there are social themes for sure. And those are great. You know, Joe talking about um, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, you know, there's a lot of great social thematics. But from a storytelling point of view, we're also deeply interested in and what I'm talking about is the emotional human thematic that is deeper than the social issue. And that's what we have to be able to put up on the on the wall um, so that everybody involved knows that's where we're, we're digging up so that when animators come in or set designers or character designers or actors, this is what we're going for. Um, and in Inside Out, now that I'm a, a writer, I had to really be able to see how do I actualize this as a producer? I'm just trying to help other people do it. Um, and, uh, you know, for Inside Out, when we got to this idea of sadness, Ronnie Del Carmen, the genius co-director and artist that he is, and you can see this in the Art of book, drew two drawings. One is Joy keeping those core memories away from sadness and not letting her drive. And the end is handing them over. So that you really understood these are the poles of the movie. This is what this movie's about, emotionally, thematically, put into action, right? Because in storytelling, people lie, so dialogue doesn't really do so much. It's about the active action behavior that somebody's doing that really shows it. So that really was that really was in it translated over. I'd say the other thing was um, I had to learn as a writer to play. 
Uh, as a producer, it was all intellect. It was all anal analyzing, trying to help other people do their work. Um, but as a writer, as a storyteller, that stuff is sitting in a different part of your brain. It's sitting over in the unconscious, uh, in the sacred unconscious. Um, so you can analyze all you want. You can outline, you can have meetings, you can put things on whiteboards until somebody walks down into the unconscious lava and just starts on my podcast, we call it a barf draft, like just, just, it, or another, maybe different, be more beautiful metaphor is bring up the clay. Um, that, that process as the storyteller is super important because you will reach deeper things. Uh, you will reach, then you even knew intellectually you were doing. Um, it's where the lava sits, it can be fiery. Um, but so that is something that I learned from working with a co-writer, John Morgan, who was an actor and actors play now and they play a lot, uh, animators and draw and artists play a lot. Um, so you can't get too precious about it. Um, and just, I guess that shift, that was the biggest shift out of the intellect and into the more sacred um, writing process that then I now, the reason I started a podcast at all was to help people know that process and that's what artistry is and that you're not alone in it. Um, and I also say, again, I don't know if this applies, but I think a lot of people come into our industry assuming that there are these people who are born like gods who just know how to do it and their very first draft is amazing and it just proves that they are chosen to be storytellers and yeah no no that's not how it works at all um I, i've had emerging writers say to me well you know i it sucked i mean what i wrote versus what was in my head that kind of beautiful amazing idea you have in your head versus kind of what you get on the page it's such a gap it's like the grand canyon so i must suck i must not be a writer and i'm like oh no no that means you are a writer <laughs> like like once you see the first drafts of these geniuses and know that the only difference between them and you is they kept going mm. and they accepted that what didn't work and understood that the first draft, the second draft, the third draft is all about what doesn't work. That is also what you're trying to pull up so that you can give you information about, oh, wait, that doesn't work because I'm not doing that or that's confusing because I don't actually know what I'm saying yet or wait, I thought that was the thematic but this over here is much more interesting and scares me more. <laughs> so probably I should go towards that because that makes me really almost physically nauseous to think about doing that. I better go over and do that. Um, so it's that kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a deeper shift into artistry of uh, allowing yourself to be really bad at it so that you can find what's in there and try to, well, you never stop the judgment. I mean, who does? Nobody does, but right. you do it anyways. Yeah. Again, just, uh, you know, I can't help but feel the parallel into the life of a nonprofit and, uh, and where you see them succeed is when they live in, I'll borrow your phrase, the lava of their mission and are able to communicate that authentically and beautifully in a way that drives connection, deep connection with uh, outside individuals who want to partner with them. Uh, and so the inverse of that is sometimes you'll see them go off 
script, go off of their mission. We we call that mission drift. That you know, you talk too much about yourself and not about your mission. You use too much I language versus uh, you language when you're talking to a donor. That you're getting away from the nucleus of of what makes your organization special. Uh, as a creator, as a storyteller, how would you counsel someone who? has uh, the task of telling the same story over and over to find fresh lava in the midst of it. I'm not sure this applies, so you can we can have a conversation about it, but if it was an actual storyteller, I would say, why are you drifting? What's happening that you're drifting? Um, there could be many, many reasons that you're drifting, but instead of just saying, don't drift, I would be more curious about it. Instead of saying, don't say I, say you, I'd say, why don't you say I? What's happening? What's, what's coming up? Because there might be gold in there. And if you get too rigid about it and say, well, that doesn't work. Okay, maybe. In terms of the long haul, yes. But why is the passion coming up there? And how is it coming up? Because A, there might be, like I said, gold in there that there is something really beautiful and juicy in there to actually bring up into the conduit of you or the conduit of the original mission. Or maybe because of what's been happening, the mission is shifting. It maybe it maybe there is a deeper insight into it, or you need to go five degrees to the right, or whatever. I I I tend to trust the unconscious. I tend to trust flaws. Um, when I worked with Jody as an actress, she didn't approach flaws as um, something to be cut out, something to be dramatically changed. She approached the flaws inside of a person is something very positive and um, a skill that is being used in the wrong way. So it's more a reclaiming. It's more of a transformative thing it, for that character through act two than it is a don't be that way, cut that out, um, because then you might silo something that had been knocking on the door. So um, I would be curious. I would take curiosity to it. And it could also, on the flip side, be fear. Um, that if I do succeed in this mission, can I handle it? If they do say yes, does that mean, oh my God, I actually have to perform and succeed? <laughs> you know, there's other reasons we start to quote unquote mess up or back because we're actually unconsciously backing away from success. Mm -hmm. uh, we're backing away from that, that next jump we have to take that suddenly some part of our brain is like, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. That's really good information to know. And maybe you can't change it right now, but if you can go to yourself and say, why am I saying I now? And you, oh, because you know, I'm scared to death. Okay, you are. You don't have to change it, but it's good to know that you are and now help steps to see, and maybe it's super smart fear. Maybe it's gut fear. Maybe there is something to be afraid of and you need to go look at that. Or it's just run of the mill fear like we all have when we got to jump off a cliff and we don't want to. Like suddenly we're like, Whose idea was this? I can't tell you how many times I'm in the middle of writing the scripts. I'm like, wait a minute. Whose idea was this? I don't even know. This is impossible. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right, it's me. Yeah. I you know, yeah. Um, but but to that extent, I mean, there's there's value in the failure. There's value in the and the tripping and falling. There's value in each of those pieces. And uh, yeah. well, you know, at Pixar, and people always ask me, like, what are the rules at Pixar? Because they want to somehow adapt them into their and I'm like, listen, the only rule I ever heard, and it wasn't a rule, it was a suggestion, was fail fast. Because if you're really going for it and you're really pushing out to the edge of a story, to the edge inside of you, to artistry, you are going to fail. They want you to fail. They want you 
to be pushing so hard, you do fail so that you learn something super important and bring it back. So it, it's not the easiest thing to do. <laughs> I'll tell you, I don't enjoy it, but uh, I, we, we, we do fail a lot uh, and you're, you're supposed to, because uh, otherwise, how do you know? You don't know. Failure is an intrinsic part of manifestation. It's necessary. Um, and so, you know, the other dangerous thing I find in manifestation is perfectionism. It is the enemy. It is the enemy of manifestation because it'll give you all the survival reasons you need to not try or not push harder. It, but uh, that's just, as my grandmother used to say, malarkey. Like, yeah, it, there's no such thing as perfection. <laughs> just, just, just go for it. Yeah. That makes me think of uh, when we had Brady Josephson of Charity Water on, he talked a lot about how they're willing to take chances mm. on trying new things and new ideas. And if they fail, that's okay. Because as the nonprofit world continues to change and marketing continues to change so rapidly, if you don't take those chances, you're ultimately you're going to fail just by not taking them. So take them, fail occasionally, but learn. And, you know, some of those ideas will be successful. Well, the other crazy thing about taking those chances and failing, at least in storytelling, I would assume it's the same, is, okay, and this happens all the time, just in a room, every single day of my life, where people bring up a note on the story, and now you right now in the moment have to start pitching fixes, right? I don't know. Like, I'm literally throwing them off the top of my head. So a lot of people say, okay, well, the here's the dumb version, right? Well, the dumb version that everybody kind of inside is like, yep, that's the dumb version. We're not doing that. But it just told somebody else, gave somebody else an idea. And they took a tiny piece of it and put it with an idea. And we're like, okay, that's less dumb. <laughs> that almost works, but it just still doesn't. And then the next piece, and, and it starts something moving around the table that we get to a solution that we never, ever would have gotten to, except somebody was brave enough to say, I know this doesn't work. In my gut, I feel something like this. Like, is that crazy? Like, or somebody take this and help me fix it. Or, and so I think often failure, quote unquote, is just the stepping stones to get where you need to be. And if you don't ever step on that stone, you're never getting there. Like, you're never going to get across because, yeah, your feet are going to get wet. It's cold. Like, you're going to look, you know, you just can't worry about it. Um, now, it has to be a safe space to do that of course you have to know that you're with people who are not there to tear down judge compete that'll kill that spirit in two seconds but uh i also think in terms of you know even on our podcast we're doing i don't know what i'm doing like i don't know in terms of marketing and patreons i don't know what we're doing but i'm kind of like well we'll just try let's just try and you know some people say well people are going to think you're trying to make money off of them and i'm like well, we're not. So we're not making any money. So that's okay. You can fix that. That's what's happening. But we're getting places that I never could have imagined. And even for myself, I never, if you told me when I was 25 years old, I was going to write a Pixar movie, I would have told you, you're bananas. You are, but like, that's never going to happen. But it happened because I just kept stepping on those rocks or you can, the metaphors jumping on cliffs or like, uh, I believe the universe can dream much bigger than you, so much bigger than what you can dream for yourself or your organization. But boy, it is going to ask you to come to the table. It's going to ask you to push. It's going to ask you to risk. It's going to ask you to fail. And I mean, sometimes dramatically. Okay. Right. Uh, 
that's okay. That's part of it. Um, so I just, I just, I trust in that. I trust that, uh, it's, I know this is going to sound LA woo woo, but oh, here it is. Like it's a sacred job that you've been chosen for as a conduit and you have a responsibility now to be that conduit and to push and do what as a storyteller in my version to tell the stories and to find them as you tell them half the time. Um, and that's a sacred job. Uh, and I believe people in nonprofits, they are doing sacred work. Um, it's not always easy. It's not always fun. You're not going to, you know, be a billionaire. I get it, but it is a sacred job that we need. And that it comes with this push, this grit, this failure is part of that work. And not everybody can do it. That's why you've been chosen. Because yeah. everybody else will quit. Everybody else won't want to fail. Everybody else won't want to do that. That's why you are the warrior. We uh, we couldn't agree more. I mean, it's uh, we consider it to be a noble profession. Yeah. And uh, that there's a need to solve the world's biggest problems. And uh, if you're not going to do it, then who? Right. And so for those who are called into the space to to, to be bold about it and uh, and to learn from their peers, but also to learn from uh, people outside of their space. Uh, and, and that's exactly what you've tell, helped us with today, Meg, honestly. Yeah, and to be bold means failure. That's just part of it. Get used to it. I don't know what to say. That's just part of it. <laughs> it and is. I also do understand, because I have days where, um, you know, some days you just don't want to be noble anymore. Mm. You know, some days you're like, okay, I'm done with this nobility. <laughs> I'm done with this sacred job. I, you know, in storytelling, I always say you will transform as you write the story. That's the job of an artist is transformation. You will transform. And sometimes my friend Lorian is like, yeah, I'm done transforming. Yeah, like I don't need to. I don't need to move my door. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm sorry. That's, 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 that's like that, that fatigue. That yeah. fatigue is, is very normal. And I think yeah. part of the process. So um, I also think we can get so again at perfectionism or somebody else wouldn't be fatigued right now. And, you know, it's just not true. Like they do get fatigued. I work with some of the best storytellers in the business, multiple Academy Awards. They also get fatigued. They also doubt. They also don't know what they're doing. And, but they just keep trying, right? So I also have compassion for the behind the nobility and the, is the effort, the, the incredible effort every day. Yeah. Um, Meg, we really appreciate you offering up your time and your experience and, uh, and helping us think about the power of storytelling. Uh, and, you know, honestly, we may need to have you record some messages for us for bad days. <laughs> uh, just, you know, just all of us to to remember the, you know, the value of the journey. Well, I so appreciate all of the work that anybody in nonprofit does. Um, you are our heroes, our warriors, and that you're doing this for all of us in the world. And such deep respect for that work and that calling. Um, and, you know, I hope I've helped in some way um, because we do need your stories and we do need your plans. We really do. We, re we need to hear them. Um, so thank you. Uh, if you want to check out uh, more of Meg's work, uh, the uh, one of your latest projects came out in November. That's My Father's Dragon, which is... Yeah. Uh, you wrote and uh, and executive produced, so you wore multiple yeah. hats as part of that process. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, 
The Screenwriting Life, uh, which is a podcast that's available on Apple and other platforms to be able to uh, understand a little bit of the uh, storytelling from a different angle. Yeah, if you're interested in storytelling, it's oh, that's all it's about uh, is is the ins and outs of that. And and right now I'm writing Inside Out too, so I'm deep in it. Yeah, yeah, very busy. So we can't wait for those things. And Meg, we're again, we're so thankful for your time. Uh, as we wrap up this episode, just encourage everyone to check out any of our past episodes, which you can find on arcadegroup.com or whatever app, uh, wherever. Ronnie, favorite uh, favorite animated film? Hey, Don't say Inside Out. That's a really bad choice. But Inside Out's definitely in the top five, and I'm not just saying that. Like, I absolutely love that movie. I I also love some of the more like pre computer drawn. Like, I, I loved Aladdin and the story of that one, and The Lion King, and some of those movies when I was a child. So, yeah. Uh, yeah so my Father's Dragon was um, done by Cartoon Saloon, and they have come out of 2D animation. It's incredibly beautiful for that very reason. Yeah. Uh, Sword in the Stone. That's the one that uh, oh. and I, I burned out VHS uh, cassettes multiple times over on that one as a kid. Even named uh, a pet lizard Archimedes. Uh, point. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Meg, what about you? Favorite favorite animated film that you haven't uh, worked That you didn't work <laughs> That I didn't work on? Yes, let's make it. I just love Ratatouille. Why do yeah. I love Ratatouille? It's yeah. just one of my favorites. I can watch it a million times. Very cool. All right, Meg, you're the best. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. For giving your time. We'll, uh, we'll, we hope to catch up and see you down the road. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our production team, including the talented Ryan Mellinger for his work on mixing every episode. Also a shout out to the content team that helps pull together research and guests, but the marketing efforts behind group thinkers, Suzanne, Ronnie, and others for their work on this and every episode of group thinkers.